Welcome back to Red Spotlight Entertainment. Today we're going to have another show for you today called To The Table. We will be watching two separate films that the other person has recommended for us that we have not seen previously before. The first film, which I recommended towards my good friend here, Alexis Soto, is Spielberg, the new documentary on the famed director. And the documentary that Alexis Soto had for me was some fucking Star Wars. I don't know. So the movie that I uh, selected for Peter was um, the Star Wars documentary, (laughs) Empire of Dreams, which documents uh, the making of the classic trilogy, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And the film that Peter, quote unquote, selected for me, even though I had every intention of watching this on my own. Sure so you did. If, sure. I, I, no, I, I, no, I was <laughs> going to watch this. It just so happened that you beat me to the punch because I actually had, I don't know, work to do. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll say that Peter selected this for me, but in all honesty, I had every intention of watching it. So, and that is Spielberg, the brand new documentary on HBO. On the life and career of the best working director today, working today and for many, many years, Steven Spielberg. So, Mr. Soto, the reason why I so kindly recommended this film for you was because um, deep down, first of all, I knew you were never going to see it. And second... uh, That's false, but continue believing that. Yeah, fake news. Um, Yeah fake president whoa you have respect sir um (laughs) it's it's not right to question your president don't you know this um oh but he questions general all the time so (laughs) if he can question anybody i can question him yeah well fake news um fake president the reason why i gave you this film alexis (laughs) is because I know how very much you are in love with Mr. Steven Spielberg's work. He is quite easily your favorite director. He is someone you consider to be the best director ever working now or ever. Um, I think it's more definitely more debatable. Um, but I also saw the um, I, ac- I kind of accidentally saw it because it, it had just come on and I was just going to see a little bit of little bit of it and then move on but i ended up just sitting there and watching its entirety because it was i just loved it and it was just so well done so i was like yeah alexis is gonna love this so that's why i was like that's the that's your next film alexis for to the table and this is where you tell me i was correct that was uh quite the explanation Mm -hmm. All I can say to that is, um, by the way, this thing just was released, like in the past week or so. So, yeah. like, you can probably still catch it on HBO if not. Just go on HBO Go, <clears throat> Kyle. Anyway, um, this best movie of the year. Really? I'll just put it right there. Best movie of the year ahead of For the me. Last Jedi. Uh. uh <laughs> <laughs> well. Last Jedi hasn't come out yet. Oh, so all of a sudden, rather, it hasn't come it, out yet. Listen, it would be preposterous of me 
to say that I'm going to proclaim a movie that I haven't seen as the number one movie of the <laughs> okay. year. Okay, for Unlike those listening, other people go back to, to the podcast uh, 69 and listen to him and Kyle saying it's already their best, it's their favorite film of the year. Well, I never said such a thing. I think it was implied, but that was never confirmed. Okay. Kyle, on the other hand, did confirm that. We have tapes. We sure do. Anyway, uh, I, look, I, I'm sure I've said this before, that the documentary series, or the genre of film, I feel is one of the more personal and uh, informative, and yet strangely emotional um, uh, genres of film that I think many people dismiss. A lot of people don't consider documentaries an actual genre of film, or seriously anyway, as like, you know, the drama is the one that's considered to be the highest of the, of the, of our genre. If you're talking I mean, Oscars. Of our, of, our, of our film industry, yeah, a lot of people, the hierarchy goes with drama and then, you know, it goes all the way down and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But look, uh, this was an absolute joy, an absolute, uh, I'm trying to call find the right word to do it justice because I'll start off with this. Steven Spielberg is my favorite director. He was my favorite director before watching this, which obviously made me very interested in watching this. And why he was my favorite director, you know, I couldn't really probably articulate that well why he was my favorite director before. Uh, I can certainly do that now, having seen this. But why I would say he was my favorite before was because literally every movie he's done or most of the movies he's done are some of, my, some of the best films ever made to begin with some of my, my some of my favorite movies of all time and i really feel that in his movies there was a consistent voice that for whatever reason without ever really putting it together um connected with me on a way that other directors films necessarily wouldn't and so a lot of this documentary actually focuses on the big hits that Spielberg has made. It starts off, uh, you see Jaws, Close Encounters, Indiana Jones, E.T., Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan, I think, are the ones that are, ma- and Jurassic Park are the ones that are mainly focused on. And those are his most recognizable films. Schindler's List? Uh, for stu- yes, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park, Jaws, Close Encounters, Syriana? Indiana Jones. Was that? Syriana. Oh no! What, what was the one that has to do with um, Munich? Sorry, Munich. Yeah. Munich. The uh, they focus on the color purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually do the hit end. quite a bit of his filmography. Even toward the end, Munich, and then uh, I think they also hit Lincoln. They, they they cover mostly the ones that work. Some of the ones that didn't work were kind of just glanced. They're like, eh. <laughs> it's there. They kind of happened, there. I guess. Yeah, I guess they do. But at least they don't shy away from the fact that they didn't work. Yeah. So, uh, and especially the one that they don't, that they get into. Well, before we get into that, just so much to say about this. Because they also do, they go into his filmography. They go into also his evolution and his growth as a director. Uh, from, his, from his early beginnings uh, to where he is right now. But what I love so much about this is that you actually get to know the actual person. From what I read... Uh, Steven Spielberg is one of the more private uh, individuals uh, 
uh, or public figures that we have in our society. There really, he would never really do many interviews over the years. Um, and it's really strange because, you know, who doesn't know Steven Spielberg in these days? Like, he is um, someone that has a name to himself that people just, he is a household name. That's who he is. So it's really strange that this is actually one of the first uh, pieces made in which he obviously gave his full blessing because he was completely um, transparent and open about literally every part of his life. And I think the filmography and his love for cinema is takes center stage here. But what also is not looked over or glanced at, which I'm very happy, is the man behind the camera and his early beginnings, his family uh, troubles, um, his religion. It really kind of, in, in two and a half hours, gives you a really nice picture of who this person is, who he has been throughout his life and where he's continuously going. And I just have to say, the more I saw of uh, who Steven Spielberg is, the more I ended up really, really loving the man in a, in a way that, you know, before, you know, Steven Spielberg, I love his films, but I could never really say that uh, I had an inkling, maybe an inkling, but I didn't really know much about him personally. And I think this movie really helped to give you the full picture in a sense. And I just have to say that because of this, uh, we'll say little documentary, I, I feel he has really become now an icon to me because a lot of what I saw in him as a person, how he carries himself, his ideology, his philosophy in life, um, his candidness about looking back, um, obviously the sentimentalist, the idealist, uh, the patriot even, as he calls himself. There's so much of myself that I saw throughout his life that it really kind of clicked for me why I feel he... Uh, his movies are so huge on me. And when you see this documentary, you really get to see that Stephen really injects a lot of his own personal life into a lot of these movies, into the relationships and the way he writes the characters and how they go. Um, and it really just shows you uh, the storyteller he is. Uh, I know I think back to... Um, you know, that scene in Saving Mr. Banks where you have Walt Disney talking to P.L. Travers at the very end of the film where they both um, pretty much tell their own terrible stories about their parents and how, how sick and tired they are thinking about it having ended that way. And what storytellers really do is they can find meaning and closure in writing better endings to those stories. And so, in really, in a nutshell, uh, having watched this, I identify so much with who he is, with who Steven Spielberg is, uh, that it really made sense for me why all of his films really do resonate with me 
on a deeper meaning than most other directors. So there's my spiel uh, for now. So I'm going to toss it back to Peter to see. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure he laughs at me for being sentimental, and then we'll go forward with what he thought of uh, the documentary overall and then some specific scenes that he liked. Um, first of all, spiel. Yes. Okay. That took a lot of <laughs> took a lot of hookspah. 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 You got to pronounce it right. Um, <laughs> uh, I I everything that you're saying right now. Wa- watching after having watched the documentary, and like letting you know you need to watch that. That's that's exactly what I knew. You would gravitate towards. Because um, that's that's kind of what I gravitated toward. The every, everyone knows the great films Steven Spielberg's made because he is easily the most recognizable director in the entire world, <clears throat> you know, the world over. And for many, he's going to go down as the best director ever, and la 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 la. Uh, but like you said, there there you don't really see much behind that um anywhere else but you see it here like like his family dynamic and and the things that really stood out to me um that really for me are you it's able to like pinpoint it and say this is it this is why either he's so successful or he just resonates so well with people and um and I'm just going to start jumping around. Or do you want to yeah, start I mean, it from the beginning? The- honestly, you can jump around because I'm going to be jumping around. Okay. Because the, the, the truth is, there is so much that to take away from this mm-hmm. throughout his entire career from any point that we're just going to... It's a basically a free-form discussion, okay? Mm-hmm. Bear with us, but I implore everyone right now to go see this. Oh, yeah. You need to go see it's this. A great, it's a great documentary. It's a really good film. Um, and this is something that you can already... The reason why I'm starting with this is because you can already see it in his films, but you never realize at just what a deep level it really came from, although you probably should have, because when you direct something, that really is pouring yourself in, into, into whatever you're making. Um, just the relentless sort of optimism he has. Yeah. Um, like, even when he would try to make darker films... Um, People would notice uh, um, film critics and, you know, film buffs are like he he would still would would never be able to commit fully to just cynicism. He would never be able to just get lost in the darkness. He, he really he would always have to just add a tinge of optimism and life into it, no matter how dark the material he was covering. It, it could never just end on. And everything was terrible, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I think they really touched on that um, uh, when they were talking about Empire of the Sun. Um, yeah. And the way he, he really took the ending of the film in a different way and where a lot of people were like, oh, there goes Spear, Spear, Spielberg uh, having to do what he Make does happy best. Ending. Happy ending. Yeah. Also, The Color Purple was one of his more savaged films, probably the most savaged film, mm-hmm. because he was adapting something that was very 
uh, on Spielberg, mm-hmm. and he he took it. He didn't go. I think what Kathleen Kennedy. By the way, this this documentary is filled with A list talent yeah. and icons and idols um, like Kathleen Kennedy. You're Kyle Peter's favorite. Um, <laughs> But I mean, Kathleen has worked with Spielberg pretty much her whole life, so it's obviously it makes sense. But she said herself, like Stephen could never go where the the writer of The Color Purple could go, because from what um, was said in the documentary, it was very much, and I think this might have been the early '80s. It was like a lesbian heavy thing, yeah, um, and it was only just barely glanced at in the movie, and he was. Savaged for for that decision anyway, and I and I love how he just admits like I, I don't know I just I couldn't do it like I yeah he's like today maybe I probably could but it's it's just well, today would have been fine yeah but it, he admits it's just like I don't know I just I couldn't couldn't go that way I couldn't commit myself fully to 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 doing that and I you definitely see later on in his career I don't think. Because he does more serious and slightly darker films, even up till today. But I don't think it's like his outlook on life changed. And, I, and they, touch about, they touch on that. It's more that he just wanted to challenge himself to see mm-hmm. if he can push himself. But I think right. even in his darkest film, um, and for me, that's Schindler's List there there's always this humanity that yeah. that he brings into um all of his films that is just relentless that's that's always there and i think that's something that's the reason why he has resonated so well with so many people because everyone can really gravitate towards that his his humanity the long yearning for humanity we always think of ourselves and society we think of ourselves that we should always be better. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in times like these, and it, it didn't just start with Donald Trump. I know we, we deride him, but it, it began a while back. But we're in this perpetual state of cynicism and acceptance of nuclear warfare and the apocalypse. We're, we're living really in what can be described as the dark times. And and Peter will admit to this as well as I, that in recent, in recent days... Uh, probably in recent months um, outlook on humanity are, it's been taken a beating and it's really hard to find uh, the goodness in people anymore well it's just like every time you turn on the news it was like three hurricanes four earthquakes the worst shooting in American history fires, tornadoes um, the president attacks some veteran and and, it, and it's just like everywhere you look it, it's 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 tough it, it's tough times um even in the entertainment industry as we discussed before with yeah. uh, our very own screen junkies and obviously in hollywood there's just everywhere you look there is just a perfect storm of cynicism and darkness heading our way and i think you hit the nail on the head peter a lot of the reasons why his movies work is because he he refuses to give in to cynicism. Mm-hmm. Whatever movie he's doing, he always brings that humanity in himself and injects that into the identity of the film. And what, going back to what you're saying about how he wanted to challenge himself is because, and 
like I said, we're going to be skipping around here. Mm-hmm. But this was at the period of time before Saving Private Ryan, before Schindler's List, and definitely before Jurassic Park. This was right in the aftermath of the commercial, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. the commercial hits of Jaws, E.T., and, of course, the Indiana Jones trilogy. Oh, and... Um Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I still haven't seen. Oh so my God. I need to see that movie. You really do? I've been meaning to see it for a good year, and I haven't had the chance. But that was Spielberg coming off those hugely successful, quote-unquote, commercial hits. And, and but uh, go bef- Yeah, sorry for butting in. But what's so interesting with that is everyone in the film industry kind of looked down on him. Because he was this very young, he got this big contract, and like immediately right away he was making these big hits that everyone loved. And I think in this form of jealousy, the way people would push back against him is by saying, well, those aren't real films. Those are are audience films. They're not real films. And, And I think... That that I I think they never really touch on it too much. That did get to him though, a little bit. The way that they would view what he did as not art, even though, and they go through it. He really imbues himself into those films, especially with his family life. Yeah, they just happen to be commercial hits. Yeah, those are all amazing films. Yeah, I mean Jaws is known as the first modern day blockbuster. That's the one that began. The blockbuster. But Jaws, I mean, I don't think it's anybody's idea of an actual blockbuster, though. It's like, it's really... The blockbuster has evolved. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's like, it doesn't have your big special effects and action sequences and this. But here's where my issue of it, um, real, where, where, I, where I took issue with, with the criticism he was receiving. And it's, it kind of reminds me of uh, the way uh, George Lucas would look on the establishment or even Walt Disney himself is. And I think Walt Disney said this when um, they asked him about why would you make a cartoon into uh, a movie? Why would you do that? Uh, and they were like saying, well, and then after when it came out and it was a success, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, of which I'm talking about, they were like asking him, uh, well, this is, they were telling it actually to his face. Well, this is actually really great for the kids. And Walt Disney was, well, what's wrong with anything that's great for the kids? And I think if you go back even to its early, uh, the early conception of cinema, there's always been this bias or maybe this misunderstanding of films that aren't quote unquote serious. We're seeing the exact same thing today with, uh, I would say, Marvel films. Uh, yes, and I, I, I take the check of Marvel take Studios. Take the time. Uh, check Kevin the time Feige. right now. Yes. What's the time? How long did it take you? 25 a minute? Oh, my God. Kevin, Kevin Feige pays my bills, so I have to <laughs> mention this every time. This took quite a while but, before but, you mentioned Marvel. I'm impressed. Exactly. But in all seriousness, look, as you and I have said on many times, mm-hmm. Marvel Studios creates... More than what people people would conceive of mindless entertainment. And we don't even have to keep it to Marvel Studios. Because when you look at Marvel Studios, you have something truly special with either Winter Soldier or Guardians of the Galaxy. And then when you look at 
some other films like Logan or Deadpool. Um, or even, uh, and that, that's just a subsection of it. There's also the blockbuster genre, like War for the Planet of the Apes, or Blade Runner 2049, which isn't really a blockbuster, but it still kind of fits into that whole uh, box or whatever. It's a great blockbuster. It is. A lot of those kinds of movies, and obviously you can add in the Star Wars films there as well very easily. A lot of those movies, no matter how great or well done they are, aren't considered. They're not considered serious films, and they're not considered serious film making. And well, I have a response to that, Alexis. God, what is it? If that's your issue, do not worry because Wonder Woman. Has been, <laughs> has been noticed by the Academy, so don't you worry. Big blockbuster <laughs> filmmaking is finally getting its shot. It's finally being recognized, and they can burn in hell for that because <laughs> it, it is just another example of elitists um, and snobs in the in our industry. Here's the thing, though. In all seriousness, I feel... I've been feeling this for like a long time now. Mm -hmm. That a lot of the movies that audiences crave, that audiences love, that are actually good movies themselves, I feel that they're just ignored. And it's... You'll notice that they're, they're all commercially successful films. Like Spielberg's early films. I mean, this mentality... Oh, I'm trying to say seeps back all the way back to Steven Spielberg when he was accused of he oh he's too popular to be an artist. His films are too successful to be taken seriously. All the way back to Walt Disney when he a pioneer in filmmaking created the animated film genre was at, was not being ta- was not taken seriously at all in the beginning. You see this resistance, this bias toward other genres of films. And like I said at the very beginning, the hierarchy of the drama has literally been there since the very beginning. No matter how many new things or how, how successful other kinds of films are, that's, this mentality has permeated and has persisted throughout, I would argue, decades and decades back, half a century back at this point. So Spielberg just happened to be caught up in it. And I think un, unfairly so, because like... I don't know how you can dismiss films like E.T. and Jaws and Indiana Jones because I'm telling you right now, and you you mm-hmm. know this, those are some of the most recognizable movies in filmmaking ever. Well, to be fair, it's easy to say that now. We're, we're looking it, at the now, people yes. when they first right. came out, when there was no such thing right. as E.T. And- but what I'm saying is, like, to, to, to propel my point forward, yeah. when it comes to Spielberg or Walt Disney, those films have become icons in and of themselves. Oh, absolutely. Not the way, not the way that they were received when they were released. I mean, mm-hmm. when they were released, they were popular, sure. But, like, looking back on them, they've all are iconic films. Um, I, I agree with you somewhat. And, 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 and I think you know the place in which I agree with you because this is something I, I often say. I never understand why, for some people, a film isn't good unless it's really serious and dark. Well, that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to... Where is it that you don't agree with me? Um, 
I just want to be clear. I don't know because that's basically what I was saying. The yeah, gist of it. I was just giving examples. Well, I, I guess it's Marvel. I, I see all of Spielberg's like. So you're saying Logan shouldn't be in the conversation for best picture? Don't you do that, that to me? Say? Don't you? I, that, that's what exactly what you're I'm saying. saying. I was making M- the point. You're saying Blade Runner shouldn't be in the conversation? Of course the they of the should. Apes? Of course they should. I'm, I'm okay. It's not just Marvel. I know. Here. I know. My thing I'm is, I'm giving the example because they're popular movies that are commercially successful. There are some examples of that. Like Avatar right. was nominated for best picture. The Last Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King won. Right, Mad Max Fury Road, Mad but Max. again the tr- the trend. What's the trend? It's only one. Yeah, there, there's every a, year if there's one. They always give one token um, mainstream film. The Lord of the Rings yeah. won Best Picture. That was like the rare example that actually wins something. Mm-hmm. But I do agree with you that I, I that's that's kind of my big issue with the Oscars. It's like it doesn't really celebrate all of filmmaking. It celebrates best dramatic filmmaking. No. Um, I mean, to be fair, it's not just the blockbusters. It's, it's like the horror, comedies. It's, it's comedy. Yeah, it's 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 literally anything that's not a drama or a biopic. Yeah, let's be real here. Th- those are or the only two the, that make it into the ninety nine point nine percent. Every now and then, the indie gets in. Like Moonlight was an indie film, and that one. Eh, it's mainstream enough, though. I think it's well, it's mainstream because it it had the promotion. Yeah, but it, it, you know what I mean. Um. But yeah, but I, I think what's great about that, what happened with Spielberg is when he, the way he did, it's like, okay, like I understand what people are saying about me. I don't believe them. What I do, what I do, th- what I do, I do think is art. Um, and I would agree with him, but then also he's like, okay, let me push myself. Let me try more, um, serious films. And right, when serious, right. I mean the tone of the film. Um, mm-hmm. And then he knocked it out of the park with that too, <laughs> and he's well, I mean, created he classics. Stumbled. Well, first he stumbled somewhat, somewhat. because, mm-hmm. uh, like the color purple Empire of the Sun. But I, even those, though, I think if you look back today, I, I I know the color purple the film Empire of the Sun for a lot of people is a classic. Yeah. So and. And then but, even but when then, you get uh, to, like, um, Saving yeah. Private Ryan and Schindler's List yeah. and um, Munich and some of his other, right. other films, he, it, it, I like that because it's like, okay, you can't just scoff and push him away and say, oh, yeah, you know, pat him on the head. Good job, Steven. You made really good uh, family films. Like, no, it's like, no, you can't ignore him anymore. Now you have to admit he's a great filmmaker. Well, I mean, if you look at it, like the latter part of his filmography, I think is probably in large, in large part a response to the pushback of his of his earlier part of the filmography. Because, first of all, he shot every every one of them up when he released Schindler's List, probably his masterpiece, his magnum opus, mm-hmm. uh, Schindler's List, a movie that I will say for me is the hardest film to watch. It is such a bleak. There's humanity in there, which kind of makes the movie successful. Mm -hmm. But why that movie is also so successful, because the brutality and the carnage is not, it's not removed from it. It's, it's exactly what you thought it was and worse. And Schindler's list is 
such a masterpiece, as Kyle would always say. Well, he he says it's a classic. He says classic. It's such a classic of a movie. And that was, I believe, the first film that Steven Spielberg directed that won him Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And I believe Best Director. And it all happened the exact same year where he released a little movie called Jurassic Park. Like, I think that year just solidified him as like... Yeah. That, there's no questioning it anymore. He he delivered just the most best drama, most heartbreaking, incredibly well-made film of the year, maybe of his career with Schindler's List. And then he also made this amazing, fun thrill ride. Um, just that was a pioneer, a in pioneer special in special effects in the same year. In the same year, so it's like it was really interesting. There's no denying that. There's no denying it, and they, I'm, I'm glad that the documentary made such a point out of it because it, it's a two-in-one in, in a huge year with Jurassic Park. When you have people – and I, I, I love how they included Lucas because you know how he has a special effects. Mm-hmm. Did you see him just like foaming at the mouth of like <laughs> the realization that Jurassic Park was just like – it opened the gateway – Part of the Star Wars, the Phantom Menace, and others uh, following the Phantom, Menace. Um, the Phantom Menace, which also was a visually spectacular movie. Yeah, visually. Um, but again, because what did they show? Because computer generators or CGI—is that what it was? Yes, or what CGI was, it? was basically created with this film. Like, like it. Yeah, Stephen was like you. He, I think he was. He tried going to props, basically what Lucas would do when he made the Star Wars films. I need to make something this big, but it needs to run. Mm-hmm. That wasn't going to happen. And Steven's like, they need to run. So it's like, we got to figure out some way. The timing was perfect for it. And that really did change the industry in a lot of many ways. And also that's Jurassic Park is an iconic movie. I mean, it, that spawned a franchise, literally. Um, it's, incre- it's an incredibly well-made movie, too. Yes, but then also when you have Schindler's List, which was such a personal movie for Steven Spielberg because that was him basically reconnecting with his Jew- with his Jewish faith. He mm-hmm. had made uh, he had made it well known in the documentary that he, that for a large part of his life he shied away from it. He was ashamed of his his heritage because it made him so different from everyone else in the neighborhood. Um, that plus the estrangement with his father and the broken family. It was just this, um, this collusion of things that came together that really made him very uh, agnostic, I would say, and probably t- very bitter toward uh, his heritage about it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important how he um, was able to reconnect with that. And if he hadn't reconnect- reconnected with that faith that he- and his family... I don't think it would have been that successful of a movie because Schindler's List is impeccable filmmaking on almost every every level. And it is such an emotional devastation of a movie. And I, I mean, I, do, do you think there's a better movie he's made? I mean, uh, do you think Private Ryan would be on there? For or? some Private Ryan, but I mean... I think it's Schindler I, because that, nothing he's made has has moved me as that that last scene when Schindler just breaks down. Yeah, he's like, I could have saved more, and they all t- like, no, like, look at all these people who are alive because of you. 
And that's what I'm talking about, his humanity right there. But he was... But Oscar Schindler was a shady guy. But that's the great. the beginning of the movie, yeah. <laughs> because it's... That's this, why it's great, this, yeah. It's, this, it's not just... And I, and I think they touched on this in the documentary as well. It's not just yeah, a movie about the Holocaust. It, the Holocaust is the, is the backdrop against um, this character, Oscar Schindler, where it's just this uh, a regular shady dude who is really rich. He really doesn't care about anyone else. He, he's, he really is about all about himself. And he's just and thrown money. into the worst time in world history modern world history and the way you know the fact that he chose to do something about him why did he we may never know but was was he just affected by everything he saw was he always a good person at heart all we know is this person chose to do the right thing and save so many people and and it's that's what the story is about and i think that's why it always works that film and I mean, also around that same time, and Steven Spielberg is not just a, a director. He is I, I probably you can you can call him a mogul if you want, but I mean, he co-founder of DreamWorks Animation, mm-hmm. uh, founder of his own Amblin uh, Studios, um, and then also because of uh, through Amblin, he's also produced several. I mean, he's produced a lot of movies, uh, like the Back to the Future series, directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, and so many others. Uh, but then came Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, he's just made any kind, every kind of movie you could possibly. You, know, you want to see Steven Spielberg do a war movie? He just made the best one. I, that, that's the thing that, so whenever people want to talk about, oh, like their favorite director of all time, um, there's, I feel like there is you could name quite a bit of directors where if you said you felt that they were better than Steven Spielberg, I could understand and possibly I'll probably even agree with some of them. And but, you have, uh, pref- you prefer others to Spielberg. Just, Oh, uh, I, I, I've never really sat down and thought about it, but there's, really? okay. Um, but I don't think you can say the same about any other director who has attempted so many different genres and beyond excelled at each different yes. genre. And, and I think yes. that's something that's very unique. And that's why whenever people say, oh, Spielberg's the best, I can understand that. Because there's great directors out there, but they're always sort of in their own niche, either genre or type of film in which they make. Uh, Steven Spielberg will adapt to the different genres and then he'll excel better than most anyone out there. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, he's gone on to make other films, that, again, that people wouldn't take that seriously, like uh, Hook or the BFG, some of his less successful movies, yeah. probably. But I think for the most, I mean, at least one of them, people like them for the most part, but they're, they're not what they prefer out of Steel, I mean, Spielberg. Um, but then also like Munich and Minority Report. But then also he did, earlier in his career, um, one of, also one of his more savage movies he tried making this uh, this comedy, 1941. Like he really wanted to make that movie. Mm-hmm. I think it was with the airplanes, or it was some kind of war comedy movie. Um, and that didn't really. I never seen 1941. I've never seen it either. I've honest. I don't think I'd heard of it until I'd seen the documentary. Yeah, I mean, so. There's just so many movies he's made, honestly. But they. But you know what's 
you know what's interesting? They all sound interesting, though. Like, every movie, even though, like, Empire of the Sun, I haven't seen that one either. Oh, you, you need to see that one. And so it's like, I, I that, that was Christian Bale? And I'm like, and, like, the, the little kid was mm-hmm. Christian Bale, and I'm like, oh, that, that is, because it cut a lot of, and by the way, this is kind of a reunion of sorts, because they really do get a lot of the stars from the big movies, like Empire of the Sun to Lincoln and even Bridge of Spies, all the way going back to, to Jaws and Jurassic Park. They get a lot of uh, really iconic, you know, Goldblum and Helen Hunt. And there's just, just so many people that, that they got together Hanks. for this. Of course, <laughs> the best living actor working today. Um, um, I, oh, let me, let me throw this out there. Yes. Uh, after seeing this film, it did sort of answer something for me. And I, I now understand why Steven Spielberg will never direct a Star Wars film. Because you see that closeness that him and George and um, yeah. De Palma, uh, Coppola. That's Coppola. another part of the movie that, mm-hmm. that's so great because it also is going to be a connection into Empire of Dreams yeah. when you go into it. It was so weird how that came together because like the De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola, Lucas and, and Spielberg were just – and Scorsese. Scorsese. They were all – there were like, uh, what's it called? The Rat Pack of music, like Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin. Mm-hmm. Like, just this, this group of friends that ended up being legendary filmmakers. Go ahead, you're saying They, they were on the outskirts, these young guys, yeah. and, and, uh, of filmmaking, and they took over the yeah. film industry. Every single one of them. And this, just this support group they each had for each other. And they'd support each other, but also push each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And each one of them just became these giant, mogul, successful guys. And and they even bring in uh, George Lucas to talk about it. They touched on Star Wars a little bit. Yeah, Uh, right. (laughs) Steven Spielberg (laughs) seemed like the only one who had a, who believed in it a little more. Everyone else was kind of like, uh. Can we stop there? Mm -hmm. I mean, truthfully, that's why we love him. Because he has that eye. Mm -hmm. Like, how, how, how is it that. And of course, Spielberg would like it, yeah. though, because I mean that—that's—that's that's kind of what he—he he loves in, in the kind of movies he was making those days. But again, it just kind of brings light to the fact that it probably wasn't that great of a cut that he no, showed. No, it was, it was, it was a pretty piece of crap, terrible. <laughs> I would probably, if you and I looked at it, probably it, it would be like, oh, George, I, I don't know. And he, Stephen was saying that at that after they had a dinner party. And I don't know if it was like I think it was, it was De Palma. Coppola. De Palma was like savaging George, <laughs> and and Spielberg was like George looked like he wanted to strangle him. <laughs> it would it would be like you telling me Rebel sucks in front of my face. Oh wait, that actually happened. Oh. Me actually getting aggravated. So, but his criticism <laughs> made the film. Better. 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 That's right. Thank you for proving like, my point. Right. Thank you for yes. proving my point. You know what? That was a big fail on my part. But <laughs> in the actual movie, mm-hmm. that was... I had to pause it because I was like freaking out. <laughs> that the whole idea of the crawl came from that like that little dinner party mm-hmm. thing. And it was just so crazy. Like just the little things, you know, that of where things come from to where it ends up being in the final movie. It's just incredible. It really is. Um, but I also wanted to uh, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Cause I was just going to change uh, it to something else, but go ahead. Um, well I was too, but, Oh, I was going to say, I, I think it would be interesting to talk about the, the politics behind him. 
Because mm-hmm. I think that's something that really endears me to him. And honestly, to this day, I don't know if he's a liberal. I don't know. If, I don't know if he's a conservative. But his outlook on patriotism and really it, it, he's ne- he's I feel like he's never taking a left right uh direction really with his films it's always about attempting to do what is right and doing it Mm -hmm. the right way um but 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 i will say though mm -hmm. um to kind of add a little bit of a layer and a nuance to what you were saying um the politics have changed throughout his entire filmography oh yeah to the point where things that were considered to be to be agreed upon by both sides of the aisle are no longer agreed upon and one thing to just note while you're making your point is in Bridge of Spies, um, which is a very political movie, James Donovan, the main character, was the patriot. He was doing the right thing while everyone around him was telling him to do the politically correct thing. But the thing is, though, James Donovan was portrayed as the real patriot because he was standing up for Abel Rudolph's Rights, American values. That's, but you see, it's the the movie is a commentary on fake patriotism, mm-hmm. on this flag shrouded patriotism. It's very much reminds me of this whole debacle we have with the NFL taking a knee thing um, about this whole fake pseudo uh, patriotism. And yet, if you really look at it, James Donovan was the one who was looking out for the life. Of this person, he didn't deny that he was that he broke the law and that probably should be imprisoned. But he fought like hell to save one life because that is what the law demanded. That's what mm-hmm. this country demands out of patriots to do, not just wave the flag. And you're gonna, gonna go, go off on a tangent. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go yeah. into it. Just go take over. Take um, over with that. But I understand what you're saying. Where he did have a definitive message he was he was trying to push with that film and that's and i love that too because he never shies away from pushing a definitive message but for the most part it's always do the right thing Uh, like like when they're talking about uh munich and basically his the message of that film or the discussion for that film was does vengeance really solve anything I need to see that because that, that's the one that looks the most interesting because it pretty mm. much was like it propelled both sides mm-hmm. and a very controversial issue. And then apparently it ends with just ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It, it, it basically ends with it wasn't like, yes, we got the we got the terrorist. It's what did we solve? You know, the ones yeah. we killed are being replaced by guys, probably even worse. And it, it's we and then this continues. What did we really accomplish? They kill us, we kill them. They kill us, we kill them. And perpetual war. And then um, I never noticed that the end of the film, and I've seen that film, and I never noticed that it ended on the Twin Towers. I saw it a long time ago, so maybe that was it. But uh, this, this came out, uh, it's one of his movies that was a response to 9-11. Along with uh, War of the Worlds, apparently, which I don't remember that movie. You don't remember it? I remember it coming out, and I think my mom saw it, but I never... I, I would be too scared to see something like that, okay? So I wouldn't see that. I, I really enjoy it. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I don't deny the fact that 
politically and it like i said not a left or right thing but just this idealism of we need to attempt to do what is right um that is always pushed and again it's pushed again in lincoln Um, yes yes that that's something that i really gravitate towards and i love seeing that combined with his um almost you know supernatural optimism that he's able to hold uh, it, it, that, all that combined really <clears throat> infuses his films with the humanity and just the magic that I know for myself that's what pulls me towards his filmmaking yes and uh, to just touch a little bit on Lincoln because they do go into that into um, that honestly I didn't really think about it until it was pointed out, but it really was rather ambitious to tackle Abraham Lincoln in that light. And again, it really, what I love so much about his, his portrayal of events, which I think are more true than anything you'll get out of a history book or out of a, no offense to your uncle, out of a, out of a history <laughs> lesson. Um, and, and I know he loves that movie too. That, that movie came out when I had him as a, an instructor and uh, we were both loving it so much, but what was so good about that movie is, you know, we have this conception, and even President Trump used this as a, la- as a LOL line mm-hmm. at the debates when Hillary Clinton compared herself to Honest Abe. And, you know, that, that got a, a real laugh out of uh, the conservative audience. And I'm here just thinking, I don't know where this whole Honest Abe thing came out of. But he basically lied and was a pretty dirty politician to, to pass the 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody with a, with a history book that doesn't refer to the Civil War as the war on, against northern aggression, which that happens in half of the states in a region which I will not say, which should be pretty obvious. Anyway. New York? The, <laughs> <laughs> the Civil War happened. There was no way to end it in a clean way. And Abraham Lincoln did the right thing. And again, it's one of those issues, like you're right, it's, it shouldn't be something that's left or right. Mm-hmm. It should be something that's decent and, and patriotic. And I don't know. It just seems to me that with every movie he makes, he, he has something that he sets out to do. He has a commentary that he, he likes to do. And I know especially with Bridges, Spies, and Lincoln, those movies resonate with me so much more than I think more people our age and a lot of people kind of dismiss the movies in general. But I think it's a very important commentary to have, and they're both really well-made films as well. I think in a a similar situation, which will be with The Post whenever that comes out, which I'm also looking forward to. Um, But to kind of wind things down with, with Spielberg, can you think of any favorite instances or moments of this documentary that stick out to you instances that like made that 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 had an effect on you or moved you Mm. um probably his relationship with his father in which he um that was tough he at a young age just sort of pushed him away and blamed him for everything and he didn't even realize he kind of wasn't the one to blame you know 
it was his um his <clears throat> mother turns out yeah. his mother fell in love with someone else and he blamed his dad for breaking up the family and it really in a way it it's what propelled him to be a filmmaker because he just pushed right. himself into his work and, it, yeah. and you can really see those issues come full force into the um his filmmaking but then uh, when he gets to the point where he's like, I, I, he reconciled with his dad. They're closer than ever, and um, he made, uh, what's it called? Saving Private Saving Ryan. Saving for his dad, who served yeah. in World War Two. So it's. And I love how I love how Spielberg also just comments on, basically admitting a lot of the reasons why you have this father-son dynamic or father-daughter dynamic in all of my movies is because of this and it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. uh, it's a common trope that Spielberg gets accused of whether it is in E.T. or basically in any movie that he does but like it, you, you see a lot they used uh, The Last Crusade uh, as an example of the relationship that Stephen had with his father uh, with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford there uh, and they also show his father Who's a hundred years old, by the way? Really? Uh, yeah, he's a hundred years old. Because he looks pretty good. He's a hundred years old. Um, and and um, what's it called? Uh, the father would like he would be he he would he caught on to this father son estrangement in his films, and he would he would feel very hurt by that. And so it was very nice. Uh, Saving Private Ryan was literally for his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that such a nice thing that uh, the power of what movies can do? And how um, and where they can go. One of the things that really touched me was uh, the reunion and basically the I don't know what what the restart of another relationship with his parents. They came back together at the end. Yeah. After years of separation, isn't that isn't that just I don't know how to describe that except magical. When you have two people that just fell apart and then they find their way together at the end of their life. It's, it's, and it's also kind of sad because uh, I did read that she passed away earlier this year. Oh, wow. In February. She was 97 years old. She was 97 and he was 100. He's still 100. Um, what do you mean he's was? He's still 100. He's still 100. Um, it's crazy. And it's also crazy. To, like, Steven is 70 years old. And it's like, what? Like, I, I, I can't bring myself to, to think that he's that old because... I, I don't know what it is with the family. Uh, maybe it's no pork, but uh, they look—they <laughs> look really good for their ages. He doesn't look so. Like, He's older than George, and he looks better than George. No offense to George Lucas. Well, yeah, but um, that—that's a whole different thing. There, I, I will say though to kind of bring this to a close. Like one other thing that that connected with me is his upbringing and his. Uh, his lon- his loneliness and his um the fact that he was bullied and he was alienated by many in his town um i personally connect with that because that's how i felt like throughout all of my early years in elementary school oh i thought that's uh, you're going to say that's how i felt like in the last podcast no no peter no i, I know you're a friend I, I would never question that i mean to to, to be serious here mm-hmm. um I mean, that's what I, I felt like. I mean, a lot of us do come from backgrounds that aren't very pleasant, and I, I don't like to reflect on my childhood very much, especially when it comes to um, with with school, because it wasn't it wasn't a happy time for me at all. And that that sense of 
just being lost and, and feeling you can learn things. Like for me, like a lot of the things that I know, I, I didn't really learn from school necessarily. I, I picked up on my own. I picked up them up because I like them and that's what I like to do. And I love how Steven just doesn't like, you really get a sense for his personality here. He really is a big nerd. I mean, oh yeah, at, at his core, he just loves these things and he always has. Um, but I think the moment that really touched me the most and I hadn't really thought of it that way until it was pointed out was toward the end where they were talking about E.T. E.T., it really, I had not thought about that movie in such a long time, but it reminded me why it was one of my favorites growing up. Um, and it was at that last scene where obviously we all know the scene where E.T. is saying goodbye to Elliot. He's about to fly away in his spaceship. And what was, I, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I remember as a kid that would destroy me. It, it really would. It was one of those endings that I remember one of my earliest memories just experiencing. But it was pointed out by somebody in the in the uh, in the movie that there are no two humans like Elliot and ET, and 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 that's really that's really what what Spielberg does is this humanity that that we all should strive to be. That ev- that the fact that everyone. Uh, in like the mother, the, the little girl, Elliot, or the scientist, or whatever he was, the fact that they could all empathize and relate and feel compassion for this creature that is so different than they will ever be, the fact that they could make a connection like that, I, I, I that that's how I see things. That's how I view the world, and. I feel that in so many ways we lose ourselves when we seek to alienate, when we seek to to push those away who are different than we are. And it didn't really click until it was pointed out to me that in that instance, that's how I became who I am, is by, by watching that movie in a way that I had never realized. So, and yeah, I was crying a lot, so I... I, I <laughs> I, I just had to stop it there because it was just a mind-blowing event for me. No, but so, that, that's the uh, power of filmmaking right then and there. Uh, you don't even realize the way it, it shapes your life, but it does. Um, and I can I can name similar instances to movies growing up where it's like, wow, like I want to be like that. I, I understand what's going on. Maybe not at a deep level, but it's like... Is, uh, movies do have the ability to change people for the good, I think. And yeah. I uh, I think Spielberg, his work is, like, he's, I don't know if I would name him, like I said, because it's just not something I, I ever really think about, um, the best director of all time. But mm-hmm. he definitely always deserves to be in the top, tippy-top discussion of it and i think and, it, this, and, and he's still going though he's, he's one of those, he hasn't lost his touch he's still going we got many more movies to go with him and i, I can't wait uh ready player one that's coming up. that's the one I'm, I'm actually hoping is good i'm hoping for that one i'm i'm looking forward to the post because mm-hmm. i love those kind of movies two very but, different kind of movies too right but then also indiana jones five whenever that whenever that'll get made oh, i'm not <laughs> they need to cancel that that's just let it go Harrison's not going to let it go. Why? 
because he loves that character. He just loves it. I, he, he, I don't like being an ageist, but he's just too old. <laughs> okay. Now, now that is very ageist of you. I will just end this conversation by saying, if you have not seen this movie, go. Because I don't... Uh, this is a, a, a film that, that moved me in so many ways, and it solidified why I love Steven Spielberg so much, why I, I relate to him, I connect with him, and I identify with him in so many ways. I love that man, and I love what he continues to do, and I hope I see so much more from him. And now so we can move on to something else that we all love so much, Star Wars. When do we never talk about Star right? Wars? I don't think we ever and, talk uh, about it. No, probably not. So another documentary the Empire of Dreams, which you can all watch on YouTube, by the way. Another one of my all-time favorite documentaries. I know I, I put this on all the time before a new Star Wars movie comes on. Whenever I get in a Star Wars mood and I don't feel like watching the movies themselves or the shows, I put this on because this usually does a good job of getting me in the mood. And like we said earlier before, it's pretty much an overview, but it really is an in-depth um assessment or of um how hellish these movies were to make specifically the first one specifically the i mean the other two had their problems for mm-hmm. sure but not nothing like the first one you might even say it's i don't know solo ish uh, some of the problems damn that are happening you. damn you. <laughs> okay uh peter tell me uh well, first, I already told you what I thought of Empire yeah. of Dreams. Go ahead, start off with this. Um, well, it was a movie. Uh, I, I think when you talk about this film, you need to always begin with the man behind the movie, which is George Lucas. George Lucas. And... A pioneer in filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. A pioneer, absolutely, and, 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 and so many other ways. But it's interesting because he's just so different than his buddy Spielberg, and that, and then he, um, he refers to himself this way. He he was more uh, rough around the edges filmmaker, you know. It it none of these fancy shots or these things right here. It's just we go in and we shoot what we need to shoot. And when when he got to Star Wars, he had already made um. Uh, American T- Graffiti and, X- and TFXI? TFXL? TFXI? Which one was it? T- THX. THX. When I, I always forget the numbers. You know which one yeah. we're talking about. Um, American Graffiti, and then it was this film right here, which is the last film he would make for a long time. Um, well, reportedly. 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 We'll get into that later. But what was so... Um, what, what, what you get so much with this one is, again, the different approaches. Steven Spielberg was somebody that very much was more than happy to assimilate, um, or not assimilate, but he was more than happy to cozy up with the higher-ups and to establish relationships and work within their mm. guidelines. George Lucas was not. He was the Bernie Sanders, if you will. He was... If, if, the, if the movie industry was the DNC... George Lucas would be Bernie Sanders in a, in a nutshell. He was as anti-establishment as they came. He hated he just, he, he hated the studio, the studio system. system. He hated it with everything inside him. He fought against it, and it, it, it's funny because I, I know he said this quote. I can't remember if it was in the documentary. I think it was somewhere else 
that he's um he said something along the lines of for him movies ended when they created the talkies um he very much is he and he says this i'm a visual filmmaker you know yeah that is dialogue is just there because it has to be there <laughs> they is basically that sounds very george yes. lucas Yes, and, and and it's and that's what I mean when I talk about the differences between him and Spielberg. Spielberg is all about right. that human connection, yeah. and George is all about that the the visual fighting against the machine, really, and that visual storytelling you can take films with, and I think both of those really influenced his magnum opus, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to go about it because he, uh, there, there's just so many different iterations of it. I think there was this one thing where he, it was called The Star Wars initially, and he wrote a screenplay that was overly long. By the way, can we agree in, he never had a plan for Star Wars? Uh, I think we can agree that he, the, the details that ended up being probably aren't what he had in mind originally but like he talks like in some interviews he's like oh yeah i always planned for there to be nine films and then he says oh no there was only meant to be six okay and then it, no that, that that but we're not yeah just just not but what i was getting at is that he said that he wrote essentially what would amount to the original trilogy in in a single screenplay and he was like well i'll just take the first half the first the first quarter of it and make that into a movie and that's where you have Star Wars. But, I mean, Star Wars was changed so much. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was changed because, again, like we, we've said in the past that, um, first of all, it was changed, like, top to bottom. You know, the Han Solo was originally this frog creature. Mm -hmm. um, and as you see, when they cast it for the movie, when you brought in Harrison Ford and they found Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, the dialogue, what the hell was that? <laughs> And honestly, that was something they really did not change. <laughs> well, I mean, it got better, a little better. Oh, uh, uh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, that was just like outrageously insane. I mean, I think in, in Star Wars, there are lines that are, I think, more straightforward mm -hmm. than what they had in the casting call. Well, yeah. But like the thing about Star Wars is that so much for like as George Lucas is an anti-establishment, anti-studio director, this was an effort by the director and the studio. The studio did help out, especially um, the head of 20th Century Fox took a lot of grief uh, from his board for greenlighting this and putting more money into this. Uh, Star Wars was a disaster of a production and, and literally the most classic sense you can actually put it in. From an exploding budget, I'm sure, to just them running out of time, uh, I think they said that the, the last um, they had to film in one week. I don't know, three weeks worth of scenes, just because that the set was going to be torn down and that was it. So, you, like the president of 20th Century Fox was like, "Hey, George, you need to finish this now because I can't stop them. I, I can't go to the next meeting and say that this movie is still being made. It, it just isn't going to happen." And I know that George Lucas even, like, he had heart attacks or something. He had, like, chest pains. He had to check himself into the hospital because of the stress out of making this movie. I mean, and you can, every time, because they have footage from them yeah. filming, and 
you never see George Lucas smiling. He is, he just looks so broken. He's just constantly like sort of fidgety, and he's like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" Like that's the face that's on him constantly. So much so that uh, there was this part where Carrie, Mark, and Harrison did this bit to try and cheer him up. When uh, it was that scene of the Death Star, they were running down the corridor, and then when they said cut. Uh, they would all like do like ah, or they, they would just like you know do something ridiculously uh, silly to kind of get him to like you know relax a little bit because mm-hmm. they were actually concerned about George, <laughs> George's health. I mean, literally, um, much like Kathleen's health these days. It, it's uh, oh god, interesting. You know, it, it's like poetry; it rhymes. Of course, <laughs> in, in in so many ways. If you think about it, uh, um, also he also yeah, had to ahead. fight the crew. Oh my god, that's right. The crew is not like, on his I think, side. I think uh, there was this instance where he was the the one who was filming it, who was holding the camera, was actually not doing it the way he, he how I I've, okay. I'm not going to go there, but let's just say that the director was directing the cameraman to shoot the scenes a certain way, and the cameraman was not doing it the way the director had told him to do. Mm-hmm. He was doing it the way that the cameraman thought they should be shot. So, um, yeah, that happened. Uh, but then, he, from the, the actors didn't take it seriously. He had to fight the crew. He had to fight the studio. The story changed so often. No one really knew what this was. Everybody was just baffled by what this, like, this is walking carpet. What, what does that even mean? The force? I mean, I'm God bless Alec Guinness. I mean, he was the one that I think was being the most professional. I mean, he is Sir Alec Guinness for. You know what Alec Guinness was doing? Mm. Like, I'm sure in his mind, this little Star Wars project he was doing is similar to like when you're on Netflix and you're scrolling and then you see like Samuel L. Jackson and this like movie you've never heard of before. They came out last yeah. year and it's like this little dingy little movie that just somehow got some A-list actor to be in it to pay for a TV or something. Probably. That's what Alec Guinness was doing. <laughs> but, but, but from all the stories you have from everybody on set. He still took it serious. Oh yeah. When it came to his performance, and that really counts for a lot, and you can definitely see that in the movie. Um, but then also, from an editing perspective, the first cut of the movie was a disaster. When George Lucas says something is a disaster, it's more than a disaster. <laughs> I mean, that's a real doozy right there. I know that it, there was the, the, this picture where he brought in um, these two editors. I forget their names to to cut the film to where it ended up being. I know he even had his wife, Marsha, at the time, Marsha Lucas, who was also cutting New York, New York by Martin Scorsese, which I still need to see that movie because it really interests me. Um, so many movies. I- <laughs> I'm just giving you ideas, Peter. I know. Okay, you, you, take, you make of that what you will. Um, but in so many ways, like one of the last things that was interesting about the making of Star Wars was John Williams. Yeah. And it, and the score that he composed was like one of the last things that was put into the movie because that was the last thing I think they were working on to make the compositional score. Thank God for John Williams. Just, let's just say that. I mean, do you think the movie would be the same if it wasn't for that score? No. 
Not at all, right? This abomination was like (laughs) the happiest accident in the world. You just called Kyle's favorite movie of all time an abomination. It was. It was a travesty. (sighs) It was just strung together. Just the worst experience in the world. And they were able to magically, and I mean magically, something great came out of it. It, it, it's one of those happy It was like accidents. divine intervention What? Divine intervention Yeah It's like that it, it, it really is just An unbelievable happy accident This entire film was And I think the um, The documentary does a really good job Of showing like <laughs> No one had any idea What was going on Including George Lucas The visual effects Were like it's where some of them like destroyed and then they had to go back and redo it. I think he actually created industrial and magic while working on Star Wars just just to to get that movie finished. (laughs) There was so many instances where this all could have fallen apart easily. And then also, but then it also shows you how the reaction was opening night and the phenomenon it, it it turned out to be because even though it is as you say an abomination, mm-hmm. you you would still say it's a it's a a good great movie, right? Well, I mean that you love. We are on number eight of the series with at least twenty seven more to come. Yeah, I think that kind of says it, something to the quality of that first film, and several generations of novels. Television shows, video games, video games comic merchandise. Books. Oh God, the merchandise! The, and which was revolutionized by this movie. Uh, George was very adamant about being in control of the marketing because he knew very wisely uh, that the studio was not going to promote this movie at all. And we still see that today, where studios just they glance movies to the side that they have no faith in. And so it was really nice for George to get that firsthand. To have full control of the marketing for his movie. Also, he didn't really take a pay from the film, but he kept the marketing um, merchandising. Right. He owned merchandising. And that was the first and last time a studio ever made that kind of deal. Can you believe that? <laughs> Fox must have they been must pissed. have been tearing their hair and their eyes out of their sockets. The biggest blockbuster hit of all time, and they do not earn any of any money for merchandising. That must have just that must have hurt them. But as the course of time will show, another further twisting of the knife is eventually. They would find a new home in Disney, and Disney is like the king of merchandise in itself already. So it's like bring in the money, bring. <laughs> that is true, but I mean, to, also to be clear though, 20th Century Fox doesn't own the original trilogy. No, all 20th Century Fox owns is the theatrical version of Star Wars. And that's it. Because after, afterwards, George was like, yeah, I'm going to make more, 
but I own the movies. You don't get to own them. You can distribute them, but I own the movies. Then at some point, do you think it just comes down to he just doesn't like sharing? <laughs> Maybe I don't know, but I mean, uh, he's as he says in the, in the documentary, he's just very, very adamant about having everything in his control, like doing everything in his way. I, don't, I, I, I think your point is well taken. I'm, I'm not sure. He likes to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And he just wants to do it all himself because he wants his idea to be what he what what it'll be in the end. Um, which you can critique him for that, but that's who George has been pretty much throughout his entire life. Well, I think another sort of interesting story within the documentary is the way in which George went from railing against the machine yeah. to becoming the machine really at the end of the day <laughs> I mean he benefited well from that that's for sure yeah but also when it comes to on the making of Empire Strikes Back from again it just shows you um, he had the good foresight to bring in Irvin Kirshner uh, his former mentor and instructor at one of the film schools he attended that may have been the best decision he made for Star Wars was to bring in Irvin Kirshner uh, to direct well, Empire Strikes Back. That solidified it as a franchise. Yeah, it solidified it as a franchise, but he realized that Empire needed to work in a way that most sequels don't. It needed to live up to the original. And it ended up being uh, a better made film. Certainly a better acted film, better, better executed than Star Wars. I think people will decide for themselves which they prefer. I prefer Empire Strikes Back. I think it is the superior film. Um, then again, it's Star Wars. I love all Star Wars. But with Empire Strikes Back, you saw in the documentary that, um, again, the, the budget exploded out of control to the point where they, they ran out of money. <laughs> they ran out of money to make the movie. How does that happen? I mean, where did all the money go from like the merchandising and like oh, George had all that? Where did it go? AT AT. <laughs> it's just so crazy how all of these movies came so close to collapsing. Um, and then when we, when we move on to. Um, they also touch upon the big scene of, of Darth Vader mm-hmm. and Empire Strikes Back of how top secret it was. Uh, and I think a lot of us know our history that when that was released, a lot of people, there was a, apparently a lot of emotional trauma or controversy oh, caused by that because people drama didn't queens. believe. <laughs> people couldn't uh, believe that um, that actually happened. And how. Well, Apparently, that's why that whole scene between Yoda and Luke was put into the Return of the Jedi was because mm. they 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 said, I think they talked to a psychologist or whatever. That People didn't believe it. Kids would not believe it because it came yeah. from Darth Vader, so it needed to come from Yoda as well for the audience to to actually believe that yes, yeah, that's who it is. 
What do you know? Uh, and then we also get into Return of the Jedi, which, again, another things never go according to plan with those movies, do they? Um, they he uh, he had intended for Steven to direct Return of the Jedi, and Steven was, I think, open to it, though he never really said he was going to do it. George had the intention of having Steven, but I don't think he ever had the chance to ask him because George kind of split from the DGA. The Directors uh, Guild uh, Association. They had the audacity and, to tell him what to do. Yes, and because of that, Stephen couldn't direct a film, film that wasn't like in, in the DGA. So that that kind of like so he got Richard Marquand, who I don't know anything else about the fact that he directed Jedi, but <sighs> it became very clear that uh, George just got someone because he didn't want to be directing the movie himself. And I think it's pretty evident. That at the end of the at the end of the day, he ended up having to be there on a day to day basis, co directing if not directing the movie himself. He basically directed that film, basically, and it still ended up great. I still love the movie. I so it's like I love it as well. I love me and my Ewoks. Screw uh, you guys, <laughs> and your upcoming porks. Porks. <laughs> George Lucas approved. <laughs> But yeah, um, what I love so much about this documentary is that it really just dives into how these movies came to be, how closely they were to collapsing, and yet it's because how close they came to being complete and utter trash, what makes them special, and what really became a phenomenon that I don't think anything else has rivaled. Well, uh, not even today, since. it's still going strong. Not even today, it's still going strong, and we're still talking about it. Uh, in so many ways and I don't think there'll ever be a time where we won't talk about yeah. it it's just how dead. these movies well I mean we won't be the last people alive fingers crossed um, <laughs> anything else to say about uh, Empire of Dreams about what you liked about it what you didn't like about it anything to add after you finish yawning <sighs> sorry um no, just that um, it's it's an incredibly well-made documentary that really, like you said, exemplifies just the miracle that especially that first film, but also the rest of them really were, and that they, they turned out to this be this amazing, magical saga, or at least trilogy at that time, that everyone, literally everyone came to love. Um, I love it just for seeing, a, just from a direct, looking at it from a directing point of view and just the way this film that almost broke George Lucas mentally and physically just solidified his entire career and life really forever. He never had to make another film after that. And, but also in a way it's almost sad that he never did. Yeah. Um, so I wish he would have kept with it because it really shows. I mean, because when was Jedi released? 85? Mm -hmm. 86? He wouldn't direct a movie until 99. That's a long gap. And obviously with Phantom Menace, who I think we we both love the Phantom Menace for our own reasons. Not for being a good, good film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not for being, it's not a good movie at all. No. It's it's honestly a travesty if you think about it. And that's why a piece of me was kind of happy when he sold Star Wars to Disney because I was like, 
well, maybe he'll go back and dig out some of his old scripts and just make some small, very little money. Just test out these films. Give it a whirl. He hasn't done that yet. So it's like... I think he retired. Yeah. Success is a double-edged sword. It really is. And I mean, we shouldn't really make light of the fact that... um, I don't think the prequels were really addressed... As much in the documentary? They mentioned them, like, at the very end. They're like, oh, yeah, he's making new ones, kind of. Um, it was more of just... They were mentioned in passing just to show how successful the originals were, that they spawned more films. And, yeah. Well, I mean, you have The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, so... And whatever whatever uh, J.J.'s doing for Nine... Uh, it says here that this was released in 2004. So this was right after Phantom Menace and Tech of the Clones, right as Revenge of the Sith was being made. Yeah. Um, so I think this is at a time when people thought that Star Wars was coming to an end for reals. Because mm-hmm. at that point, it would have been episode three coming out the following year, and then that, that would have been the end of it. So for whatever reason, I'm just happy that that wasn't the end of it. <laughs> And that we still get to talk about um, Star Wars all these years later. Yay. Um, for better or for worse. Uh, but I do recommend, if, you, if you're somebody who loves these films and really wants to know more about them, go watch this. I think it'll really help you get a clear sense of, uh, and appreciate, I, I definitely appreciate this so much more because of having watched this. And I think any good documentary will do that. So, Please go out. It's actually very easy. Just go to YouTube, look up Empire of Dreams, and you can catch it whenever you want. Also, I will plug again Spielberg, HBO, go watch that. And, of course, you can always catch the great Dave Filoni on Disney XD on Star Wars Rebels. Um, So, uh, Peter, uh, anything else to say or plug before we go? Um, Nope. Um, okay, well, thank you for being here. I think it, this was a, a very uh, good conversation. I want to thank all of you guys for listening. If you want to catch To the Table, make sure to listen to us every Wednesday, if there is an episode. And then you can catch Fantasy Fair on every Friday, either the Fantasy Fair main podcast or Once Upon a Retrospect. If we have any After Darks or audio commentaries, they will be uploaded on Saturdays. And, of course, the main Red Spotlight podcast will be up every single Sunday. For the foreseeable future, uh, we want to thank you guys so much for, um, I mean, for, I mean, just thank you guys for listening, whoever you are, how many of you are. Hey, David. We love, thank you, hey, David. We love making this content, and um, uh, we, we uh, a lot of the things that we discussed here today um, is why we do these things. We love movies, uh, and we love the art form that it is and what it does for us and to other people. And uh, that's why we're here, because we love this so much. So thank you guys for listening uh, to To the Table, and uh, we will catch you next time. Bye-bye.